Welcome to Sleep Talk, the podcast about all things sleep, brought to you by sleephub.com.au. Here are your hosts, Dr. David Cunnington and Dr. Moira Junger. So hello again and welcome to episode 42 of Sleep Talk, the podcast talking all things sleep. Hi, Moira. Hi, Dave. Hi, listeners. So the theme this month is what we eat. We talked last month about when to eat and the concept of chrononutrition. So we're going to follow that up with what sort of foods may promote sleep. So Moira, what's been going on in sleep or what are things to look out for in sleep? Well, yeah, so I think at the moment what's preoccupying me or what we're all planning for, especially at the Sleep Health Foundation level uh, and Australasian Sleep Association, is the Sleep Awareness Week in Australia this year is coming up in early August, August 5 through to 11. And the theme this year is around sleep uh, and the power of sleep for our brain function, so our memory and our uh, cognitive functions. So we're just sort of planning trying to you know attract media attention and just and have special guests and spokespeople in the, from that field within the sleep field. Um, so what about you? You've got your catchy bylines sorted out yet? No, I'm not really great on the catchy bylines. I'm a bit of a uh, you know going on and on, on rambling. <laughs> After that's what I'll be doing the next couple of weeks, getting catchy bylines. What about you? What are you up to with the sleep world? Well, clearing out my diary for the week. August 5th to August 11th. <laughs> for Sleep Awareness Week. Yeah, it sounds like I need to be doing some radio interviews and other things during yes, that, we'll be calling, that week. Absolutely, yeah, we'll be calling upon you for sure. So the theme for this month's podcast is what we eat and what foods can help with sleep. The reason to try and talk about this is, as we've talked about, Moira, it's often a bit of a blind spot for us. Patients ask us this. All the time. But we just don't have the information to give them about, apart from some motherhood statements like a oh, healthy diet and no processed foods. And But there has, has there been some recognised uh, tryptophan pathway and there's a few, there's, there are little bits and pieces, tiny, tiny morsels of good quality information. As you'll hear when we get to our guest, who's going to tell us a bit about what the current state of the literature is. And it is a frustrating area for people because if you look at both the media and just everyone in our day-to-day lives, everyone's got an opinion on what to eat. Yeah, I know. So what, who do you believe? <laughs> exactly. Family, friends, work colleagues, celebrity chefs, yeah. exercise wellness gurus. You know, everyone's going to tell you what you need to be eating yeah. Yeah. for sleep. Yeah. And when I was trying to research this area... There's an article we share, you know, we talked about behind the scenes, you know, something on the conversation written by a new qualified nutritionist. And you'd think that should actually be a reputable article. Yeah. well, they, But it actually recommended all these things with no evidence base behind them whatsoever. Well, not in terms of big, yeah, large studies or you know, controlled trials, more sort of correlational stuff, which was, which is interesting and, and, and valid to some extent, but hopefully yeah. it sounds like you've found someone in the USA to dig a bit deeper. I had a chance to talk to Marie-Pierre Saint-Ange. She's Associate Professor of Nutritional Medicine at Columbia University, Irving Medical Centre in New York. So thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. And we're just going to talk a bit about what foods can help promote sleep. So what's the relationship initially between dietary patterns and sleep quality? What we know thus far from population studies is that uh, individuals who report poor sleep quality or who report having um, some sleep disorders tend to have poor dietary intakes. So these individuals tend to report higher consumption of sugary foods, higher consumption of sugary beverages, energy drinks, 
skipping breakfast more frequently. They also tend to report uh, having a more irregular eating pattern than individuals who rate their sleep as good quality sleep. And what about the Mediterranean profile? So there's a Mediterranean diet that people talk about. Is that associated with any benefits for sleep? Yes. So individuals who do report a higher adherence to a Mediterranean diet tend to also have better sleep or report better sleep quality or in fewer insomnia symptoms, for example. And what about some in an experimental setting? So have there been um, trials done looking at different dietary patterns and the impact they may have on sleep quality? So the, the intervention studies that are available have been relatively short in duration and quite variable in their study population, study design. So there is not really a consensus in, in the literature where we can definitively say that a specific dietary pattern would improve one's sleep. What we know right now is that there are associations, so I mentioned some population studies, so there are associations between various foods, various dietary patterns, and sleep, sleep quality, sleep duration. The issue that we have with these population studies is that we don't know the directionality of the relation. So when we ask participants to provide information on their sleep at the same time as we ask them to provide information on their diet, we don't know if the associations that we are uh, observing are because sleep causes the dietary patterns or whether it is the dietary pattern that causes the sleep characteristics that we are observing. We have quite a bit of information from intervention studies that can provide information on causality related to how sleep influences diet. So we know from sleep restriction studies, for example, that if we ask individuals to reduce their amount of sleep quite drastically, so by two and a half, three, three and a half hours relative to what they're usually sleeping, that they will eat more. We know they eat more calories and we know the quality of the foods that they eat is less good. So they have higher fat intakes, they have higher sugary food consumption, they have higher snack food consumption than when they're well rested. We know less definitively about the influence of diet on sleep. So one of the other aspects about food and what we eat is calorie restriction. That's been one of the tenets of the sort of dietary movement in the last 50 years or so. Uh, is there evidence about calorie restriction and sleep quality? Well, we don't have so much. So far, there's a, there's a few studies that have looked at the dietary restriction and sleep, and the data are not quite conclusive. Most don't seem to find an influence of, of dietary restriction on on sleep from the very limited studies that are out there. And I get bombarded on Facebook about particular foods. So if you eat more cherries, mm -hmm. you eat more kiwi fruit, you eat bananas, you drink milk at night, they're all going to make sleep better. What's the truth? Are there actually superfoods for sleep? Well, there are some studies actually on kiwi fruit and tart cherry juice, not cherries per se, but tart cherry juice that show that consumption of those specific foods can improve sleep. And those are intervention studies. So participants, individuals are being given these foods to consume and their sleep is assessed at night for, for a specific period of time. So for 
kiwi fruit, there's one study that's out there that uh, shows that it may have a benefit of consuming two kiwi fruits one hour before bedtime to have benefits on sleep. And there's a, a couple of studies, a few studies on tart cherry juice showing that that could also have a benefit on sleep quality. Uh, bananas, that's the first time I hear of bananas. So I'd have to look that one up. Yeah, I've got a few people t- tell me about bananas, but yeah, I had a look at the literature as well and I couldn't find anything. So maybe this is just anecdotal uh, evidence, but I haven't seen any scientific studies on bananas. So how do you think the effects of kiwi fruit might be mediated? It's not quite sure yet. It's, it's very difficult to, to determine what it is, but there, uh, with fruit, it might be uh, the antioxidant content of fruit may have a benefit on sleep. Some studies have suggested melatonin content. Some fruits may have uh, some melatonin in them that may also improve sleep. We've shown from our in our research that dietary fiber is associated with the quality of sleep at night. So it's possible that some fruits and vegetables providing higher fiber intakes could potentially be linked to uh, to better sleep through fiber. Yeah, that's interesting. So one of the things I see in my clinical population of people with insomnia is carbohydrate-seeking behavior, either before going to bed or if they wake during the night. So maybe there's something in that if they're satiated with carbohydrate that's high in fiber before they go to bed, maybe that's changing some of that sleep-disrupting mechanisms. It's possible. It's possible with the more stable blood sugars that there be better sleep at night. But the data also on... on um High glycemic index foods and um, carbohydrate quality needs to be further examined. From our research, what we found was when participants consume more sugars during the day or more simple carbohydrates during the day, their sleep at night had more arousal. So they had more of those micro-awakenings in the middle of the night uh, with higher sugar intakes. So potentially with a higher fiber um, more complex carbohydrates, those wouldn't be as, as prominent. And what about milk? There's the sort of myth or the may not be a myth. You know, we're all told to have a glass of hot milk before bed. What, what's the story with milk? So milk, there's been some research on Horlicks milk, which is um, a malted milk beverage. And those also show that there may be some truth to that, that uh, consuming this type of uh, malted milk product could have a benefit for sleep. There's also a very clever study that um, they milked cows at night where their melatonin levels would be higher and and produce higher melatonin milk. I think this was a, a pilot study, preliminary study, but showing that you can actually increase the melatonin content of milk by the time at which you milk your cows and Potentially, that could also have a benefit for sleep. But uh, that remains to be determined um, whether that could be a sustainable and something that we could see in the, uh, in the food supply uh, in the future. Yeah, I saw that in your, one of your review papers, and it was a tenfold increase in the melatonin concentration in milk at night. That's just fascinating. Yes. My son's got a fascination with cows, so maybe that's what I need to get him into is you know, running a dairy and milking cows at night. Right, exactly. It was very interesting. Now, another population that I look after clinically is people with disorders of hypersomnolence, so excessive sleepiness like narcolepsy or idiopathic hypersomnia. And there's some talk in patient forums about ketogenic diets improving symptoms of sleepiness. Is there any data to that? So we found one study that looked at um, ketosis 
and there didn't seem to be in the keto in the high ketone phase of an influence on sleep. That study had uh, had quite a bit of limitations, and it was difficult to actually time their figure out what the timing of their assessments was because they had a it was a multiphasic study where they had like an acute phase of very low carbohydrate intakes and then more liberal and then and they had assessed ketosis in the process. So there there's not much research out there about ketosis and sleep. But it's it's possible that uh, a ketogenic diet could could play a role on sleep. And how does a ketogenic diet differ from say a sort of low carbohydrate, high protein diet? Are there differences between those things? Well, a ketogenic diet, you would you would reach ketosis. You would actually find ketone bodies in in the blood, uh, whereas just a general low carbohydrate, high fat, or low carbohydrate, higher protein diet, you you would not necessarily get into this ketotic phase. Uh, when you're following a, a ketogenic diet, it's quite drastic in its uh, restriction in carbohydrate intakes, and it's very high fat, high protein tends to be uh, difficult to follow over an extensive period of time. And it's mostly advocated for uh, individuals with epilepsy, for example, to control uh, epilepsy symptoms. Yeah, my son's got severe genetic epilepsy, and we, we've tried a ketogenic diet, and I've got to say it's tough, really tough to it maintain. Tough. So for people who are already struggling with sleepiness, and that makes it hard for them to source good food and have the energy to produce food, you know, trying to have a severe dietary restriction is quite a limitation and quite an additional thing for them to take on. Yes, I would agree with I would agree with that. It's just an, an additional challenge, and and whether it's sustainable long term just remains to be determined as well. There are other issues too, right? When you're reaching such high fat intakes and very low carbohydrate intakes and high protein, uh, with individuals who have other health diseases, right? It's easy to think about. Uh, People who have chronic kidney disease, for example, wouldn't be able to tolerate such a high protein intake. Uh, individuals who are at risk of cardiovascular disease, you'd have to worry about the fat content of the diet and the fat quality of the diet. If you're talking about high protein, high fat, you may be consuming quite a bit of saturated fat. So that's something to to consider. So uh, when we talk about health, there's just there's more. We're talking about sleep today, but there's also the other conditions within individuals that need to be taken into consideration. There are risks for cardiovascular disease, diabetes, hypertension, um, chronic kidney disease, things to be uh, dealt with as well. Yeah, that's a really good point because you know a lot of the patients I talk to, they see that as a low-risk option, a ketogenic diet, but it's actually mm-hmm. not without risk, particularly as a longer-term strategy. Correct. And, and it needs to be uh, a diet that's taken with care. And, and I would de- definitely recommend someone who is considering a ketogenic diet to speak with a dietitian and to, to really be followed for nutrient adequacy uh, and also not aggravating other potential health conditions that they may have. So there was some work presented this morning at the Sleep 2019 meeting where you are in San Antonio at the moment that you're involved with that looking, looked at habitual dietary quality on sleep. What did you find as part of mm-hmm. that work? We've published a couple of, uh, of things from our lab. Um, one is our, one is data from uh, the clinical intervention study. So we did a um, sleep restriction study where we had participants under uh, sleep restriction and under conditions of habitual sleep. In the habitual sleep condition, our participants were allowed to sleep up to nine hours. So they spent nine hours in bed. Obviously, they didn't sleep all that much. But they were 
able to um, to sleep to satiety, right? To, to, to obtain the, a level of sleep that was sufficient for them, which was about seven and a half to seven hours and 45 minutes or so. In the first part of that uh, that phase, we controlled their food intake. So they had no choice in the matter. We, we gave them everything that they had to eat over a four-day period. And then after that, we let them self-select their food intake over a one-day period. So we looked at whether uh, the diets differed when they self-selected their food intake compared to what we provided for them. Uh, the diet that we provided for them was a healthy diet that followed the uh, dietary guidelines for Americans. And what they consumed on when they self-selected their food intake was not quite as, as healthy as what we gave them. And that diet was higher in overall calories, as well as being higher in saturated fat and sugars. So we knew that there were differences between what we gave them and what they self-selected. So then we asked the question of whether their sleep at night in those two different dietary conditions differed, and, and it did. They spent less time in slow-wave sleep, so they had less time in deep, in deep sleep when they self-selected their diet. And they also took about twice as long to fall asleep when they uh, self-selected their diet compared to what we provided to them. And this is when we looked at the different nutrients that were related to uh, sleep at night and where we found that fiber, simple sugars and, and, and um, added sugars, as well as saturated fat were related to sleep quality. So when they had higher intakes of fiber and lower intakes of saturated fat, were related to more slow, slow wave sleep, so more deep sleep, and the higher intakes of sugars were associated with more arousal. In that session, we also presented data from a population study, the multi-ethnic study of atherosclerosis, where we looked at adherence to a, a Mediterranean diet. And in that study, we did a cross-sectional analysis, so looking at a snapshot in time of participants uh, reporting on their sleep, and when they also had sleep measured by activity, and when they reported on their dietary intakes. And we found that greater adherence to a Mediterranean diet was uh, associated with a greater likelihood of sleeping slightly longer compared to uh, short sleep. And they had a lower odds or lower likelihood of reporting insomnia symptoms if they, had, if they also reported a higher adherence to a Mediterranean diet. We also looked at uh, longitudinal changes in, in dietary intakes, and we found that uh, when they reported stable adherence to a Mediterranean diet compared to uh, those who reported a reduction in adherence to a Mediterranean diet, there was less likelihood of insomnia symptoms. And when they reported increasing their adherence to the Mediterranean diet compared to um, those who reported a decrease in the adherence to the Mediterranean diet, there were lower odds of having short sleep than short sleep duration. We're really finding some hints of a healthy dietary pattern really having potential beneficial influence on sleep quality, specifically related to uh, duration and insomnia symptoms. And when we think about it, uh, Mediterranean diet, we're thinking about a diet that's higher in fruits and vegetables, higher in nuts and legumes. So we're talking about a diet that's higher in unsaturated fat rather than saturated fat, higher in fiber, antioxidant vitamins. So really, it, it's really complementary to, to uh, our 
intervention study where we uh, found that fiber, low simple sugars, and low uh, saturated fat were related to better quality sleep. That's really nice work. Now, to try and sum it up for us, you know, based on your sort of knowledge so far and the work you've been doing, if someone's trying to eat well for healthy sleep, what's some basic principles they should follow? Really, uh, increasing fruits and vegetable consumption, reducing saturated fat intake, definitely reducing simple sugars, so those uh, sugary beverages, sugary snack foods would be something to uh, try to remove from the diet. So not as simple as just having two kiwi fruit at night. It is more about what you're eating right across the day and thinking about it in a sort of whole diet sense. Rather than, you know, have uh, recommendations that you can eat whatever you want, but if you have two kiwi fruits one hour before bedtime, it could salvage your whole day of, of sabotage, right? But there, there, there are some good studies out there about specific foods. So the only issues that I have is that these give us so many more questions uh, than answers. What types of food should we recommend? In what quantity? At what time of day? What frequency is two kiwi fruits one hour before bedtime? All that you need to do. Are there other foods? Uh, what about things early in the day that could potentially also influence your sleep at night? So, so for me, I think that a whole diet approach, a holistic diet, would be more a healthy way to approach sleep. That could also be helpful for many other chronic diseases. Great. Thanks for those helpful comments. Thank you. Oh, that was great, Dave. Thanks for that interview. You'd certainly covered a range of topics in quite depth. Yeah, I feel, really feel like it's filled a void for us. What, 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 is, what was your Yeah, I felt that's impression? really helpful. And I think the, the take-homes for me was just the importance of it's not about what you eat just before bed. It is that, yeah, what you eat across a week or across a day and really a healthy diet, higher in fruits and vegetables, less in saturated fats yeah. and highly processed sugars is what's going to be healthy for sleep. Okay, so not one particular thing or don't, or about avoiding particular things? No, we actually didn't get into that much because that's a little bit more, there's a lot more work on that and that's yeah. pretty much more, much better known in the general community. Avoid alcohol. We'll talk to talk about that in a future episode. Yeah. Avoid caffeine because it's impact on sleep. Avoid nicotine. Avoid some of the food additives that are stimulants. But say, that's something we didn't cover in the interview so much. If you're looking for more information, there's a really nice review paper called The Effects of Diet on Sleep Quality, published by Professor Sonange. Although we didn't get her on as a guest for this episode, uh, Professor Felice Jacker uh, in Melbourne's published a book, Brain Changer. That's more about foods for mental health, but it does overlap a little bit with anxiety and uh, therefore sleep. And if you really want to get nutritional advice, you can talk to your healthcare professional about getting referred to a dietitian. And I'd much more recommend that than following the latest fad diet, which may not necessarily give you the results that you're after. So what's your clinical tip of the month this month, Dave? So I'm circling back to a theme from a couple of episodes ago. And really my clinical tip is for healthcare professionals to not tell people don't nap, to really try and embrace napping. Now, there absolutely is a time where as healthcare professionals, we tell people don't nap, try and avoid napping. And that's when we're trying to build up homeostatic sleep debt as part of a sleep restriction treatment early on when we're managing yeah. people with insomnia. But pretty much in all other circumstances, napping can be a great strategy. And but these, if it's short, what do you think? What's, what do you define as a nap? Ah, because that's where it's really tricky because these, I'll give you a couple of examples that have triggered me wanting to talk about this 
uh, this week is one was in a person who had significant comorbid illnesses. They had a fatigue syndrome, they had persistent pain, and so they had lots of reasons to already be pretty tired, and they were desperately trying to stay awake right across the day because they'd been told by a range of healthcare professionals not to nap. And they're trying so hard to stay awake right across the day that then they were running on nervous energy and so much nervous energy that by the time they got into bed, it was like, well, I really need to sleep now. And if I don't sleep, I'm really going to be in trouble tomorrow. And it just put so much pressure on overnight sleep. Another example I saw was someone who's a little bit the opposite, but quite significant anxiety and some prior trauma. So high, high levels of hyperarousal. And really is only sleeping for three or four hours at night because they can, you know, that's only about as, as long as their sleep drive can keep them under the surface with that high arousal, mm. but could also nap readily in the afternoon, but was just trying to avoid it because yes. they'd been told. thought it was the wrong thing to do. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Thought that mm. was the wrong thing to do, but they really felt it really helpful to think, oh, okay, I could get an hour or so in the afternoon and then it doesn't matter so much if I'm getting a bit less mm. at night. And it really took a lot of the pressure off for them. I suppose, can you see why, though, that the general rule has been to say to the general population, like, you know, beware, be cautious of napping because it will drop, it potentially could drop your sleep drive. Because I think I think what, for me, the bugbear for me is that what people call a nap. Like when they say, oh, yeah, I had a nap, and it was seriously, it was like 1 till 5.30. Like that's not a, would you call, that's not a nap. No, that's a sleep. That's a proper sleep. Or, or as I heard David Rye talk about on a podcast recently, it's a coma. <laughs> <laughs> so that sort of sleep in the afternoon, you know, yeah. it's not a brief nap. <laughs> so it's nice to sort of try and define our terms, keep it short. So Moira, what's your pick of the month? Well, my pick of the month that caught my eye recently, um, and I'm sure that you followed it too, in fact you alerted me to this, is that... Ariane Huffington from Huffington Post and Thrive Global has been working for a number of years trying to get the World Health Organization to recognize um, burnout as a as a condition in the international classification of disorders. Lo and behold, just recently it has there's a press release saying that it has become a condition, and I certainly got to say I have mixed feelings about that. What is it? What is it you don't like about? Well, that? when I first thought, I thought, oh, really? Like burnout? I, I guess because mostly clinically I'm trying to minimise pathology wherever possible and encourage hope and not necessarily get pinned down to an actual disorder, particularly burnout. And obviously we can burn out from work, but it's not just from work. You can all feel burnt out from just the accumulation of everything, like our life outside of work, work as well, with not getting enough sleep, for instance, or eating the wrong things. There's a whole range of stuff in there. I just would have thought, gee, it's a bit, I, I think it's murky territory sometimes, even what's stress, what's burnout, what's a condition that's diagnosable as anxiety, depression, where does it fit, where does it impact with hand in glove with the sleep disturbance or the substance misuse. Or, there's just so much in there. I, I was just a little bit disheartened in a way rather than thinking that's good news. That's what I thought. What about you? Similarly, I think there's good in that it does put on the table that for some people in extreme circumstances, they can burn out and have significant health consequences. But all of us have busy weeks and times when we feel a bit frazzled and feel like we need to pull back and reset a little. And so where do you set the threshold? That's really the question for me between normal life, you know, busy life in a modern world and 
burning out. That's, I think, going to be one of the challenges in how you well, apply for that. Well, I suppose I just think too a condition is like, oh, I've got the condition. Whereas I would like to think if there was burnout that you can actually rest and get better and then you don't have burnout. Like it's not a yeah. – I haven't delved into uh, a lot of the commentary around, particularly from Ariana's perspective, because I would just like to think, oh, let's just let's shed, the, let's shed it as a condition – Let's not have it as a, I've got this disorder or this condition that's a diagnosable thing. Let you have a rest and take a couple of weeks off and you're not burnt out anymore. That's what I'd love. What about you? What's your pick of the month? So my pick of the month is another podcast. So this one's the Narcolepsy 360 podcast. It's hosted by Claire Crisp and it's produced by uh, Wake Up Narcolepsy. And I think it's a really good podcast series. So it features both patient stories. So stories of people with narcolepsy really talking about living with narcolepsy and some of the challenges that that uh, provides. Great episode recently from Eleanor Wales, who's an Aussie from Sydney. And oh. Elle produces some really great stuff on social media, Instagram, Instagram stories and narcolepsy memes, really showing what it's like living with narcolepsy. Oh, Eleanor's someone who has narcolepsy? Yep. Yeah. And she's really open and really honest about her experiences with narcolepsy, both in her social media. So she's great to follow. Falling Asleep Elle is her handle. She really gives a good account of the challenges of living with narcolepsy and her own personal experience in this podcast. Oh, great. I'll have a listen. Another couple of good episodes as well. So they've interviewed Jason Ong, who we've both collaborated with on mindfulness and insomnia. And Jason's moving on to try and look at some non-drug strategies for managing hypersomnia and narcolepsy. Yeah, he's wonderful. And an episode by David Rye I really enjoyed, talking about idiopathic hypersomnia. So check out that podcast series. I really enjoyed it. So coming up over the next couple of episodes, so look out next episode for Dr. Simon Frenkel, who'll be joining us for an update on sleep research. He'll be freshly back from the Sleep 2019 meeting in San Antonio. And we'll also put together some episodes about cannabinoids, alcohol, and whether we should be sharing a bed with a partner and how to do that best. Thanks for listening. I think it's time to sign off. Send us any suggestions at podcasts at sleephub.com.au. If you like the podcast, you can give us a review at Apple Podcasts. Don't forget you can subscribe anytime or download the Sleep Talk app. Thanks a lot. Yeah, see you next time. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for your own independent health professional's advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider within your country or place of residency with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. 